Look, if there's ever a chance that there's going to be insolvency reform, it's going to be today. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. We in Australia adopted a debt hibernation policy to cope with COVID-19. How did this come about and how is our system coping, for example, with Virgin? And are we doing this differently to other countries, notably the UK and US? And should we reform our system closer to the one the UK has now adopted? Here's Ben Sewell of Sewell and Kettle in Sydney with some insights. Hibernation strategy. Australia chose a debt hibernation strategy. That means just all debts are put into a box and locked up until, until October. Is that what a hibernation strategy is? That was the economic theory. So there's a, a great financial review article. can't remember the name of it, but what it was about was about how a group of academics at the ANU wrote a blog post and they suggested that Australia, because of COVID-19, economically going to a um, hibernation pattern for a short period of time and that the economic policies should be designed around that. So that has also affected my area, which is insolvency law. So insolvency law has also gone into a six-month hibernation between 24th of March and 24th of September this year. And what that means is that there's limitations on enforcing debts. There's limitations on winding up companies for unpaid debts. There's limitations on landlords being able to enforce rent debts. There's also an allowance for company directors to continue to trade even if their company isn't solvent. So a complete reversal of all of the systemic protections against insolvent trading and companies building up debts that I've been trained on and I've seen for my entire career. Is that a, it's a strange feeling, isn't it? When all the rules suddenly don't apply anymore. Well, I've been arguing for reform of our insolvency regime for a long time and particularly voluntary administration I've seen as a very ineffective and a very Darwinian process that I don't think is productive, particularly for small to medium-sized enterprises. So I've been talking about, about that for a long time and there's been no real reform. So we've had a um, we've had very small, very incremental reform processes over the years, over the course of my career. So when suddenly in March there was a, um, a complete change in policy, suspension of the insolvency regime completely for six months, yeah, it was amazing. At the time I thought, okay, well, Let's just see how it pans out. You know, there's I don't have any economic arguments against doing it. I can see that it's going to have a cost to Australia in terms of lost productivity and potential efficiency issues. But if it's only for six months, then it seemed like a, um, a sensible idea at the time. Now do the reform that has long been overdue? Well, this is the question because in the UK – They actually pushed through from some very significant reforms of voluntary administration this year. So they have completely changed their administration model, which was based on ours. And what they've done is they've taken a step towards something like the American Chapter 11 process. So in the UK, they've undertaken a very significant reform. It's something that has been discussed in the UK for a while, but because of COVID-19, what they've done is they've pushed it forward. There's nothing like that in Australia. There's no very significant reforms 
to voluntary administration today. So there's two paths you go down. One path you go down is you could say, okay, well, we'll involve the government more. So there'll be, um, like in the UK, an official receiver that does a lot of the unfunded work and steps in as the liquidator. Okay, that's one direction. The other direction is you go down a, a debtor and possession model, which is something like what they do in America. Okay. What does that mean? Okay, well, what that would mean is um, Virgin Australia went into administration. It had 500 million in the bank, okay? But it had a lot of employees that were owed dumb money. So the directors didn't want to make a decision to continue to trade. What it resulted in is a fire sale, which is basically very low price. The management gets replaced. Someone new comes in. Is that what has happened? No, I haven't followed it. That's, that's what's going on. Whereas in America, with the Chapter 11 process, it's a court-based application and the, the company has about 180 days to create a restructuring plan. And if the restructuring plan is not approved by the creditors, they can go to court and they can seek approval from the court and the court can override a creditor dissent, whereas in Australia they can't. So that direction is where the UK is going. They're going down that, that path. It's a much more business-friendly process. And whereas in Australia, we've got an industrial democracy type model. Industrial democracy type model means the creditors get a vote. So they decide. If they vote against, then the company goes into liquidation. Problem, the key economic problem I've got with that is this, is that if you have an industrial democracy model in Australia, what it means is the reality is the creditors might get cents on the dollar. So why would they vote to basically give the company back to the directors, to take a haircut on their debt. Why wouldn't they just punish the directors and put the company into liquidation? And in the Virgin case right now, what you're seeing is the bondholders are coming in. So the bondholders are going to get completely cut out. They won't get any return for their bonds, but they've got a vote. So what they're trying to do is to use their vote to get a benefit out of it, whereas they sit between the unsecured creditors and the shareholders. So you would think that in whatever scenario is developed that, that they won't get any return. All they've got is their vote. The economics of the, uh, look, let's face it, you have a duopoly. So you only have two airlines. So if the voluntary administration procedure doesn't work with the du duopoly, okay, with huge barriers to entry, huge investment costs, large workforce, if it isn't going to work there, it's never going to work in terms, oh, sorry, not never, it'll, there's a very low chance of it working in other scenarios because a duopoly is obviously a very good economic position to be in. At chapter 11, was it 110 days or 190 days? 180 days. 180. So that's basically six months. Voluntary administration in Australia is about five to six weeks. So the administrators of Virgin Airlines, unless they go to court and they get an extension, they've got to do the fire sale within that period of time. There's another procedure called the deed of company arrangement. And what that means is the administrator goes to the creditors with a proposal and says, okay, here's a proposal from the directors. They are proposing to restructure the company and ensure that the creditors are paid a certain percentage on the dollar of the debt. In the Virgin case, I don't think there's any prospect that a real debt company arrangement could ever be agreed because there just simply isn't enough money that can be offered to pay off the billions in debt. The haircut will be huge. So the administrators made an early decision rather than go through that process to restructure just to sell the airline off through a fire sale, which means the highest bidder they can get within four or five weeks, which in any analysis of the valuation, you would think 
it's a terrible way to do it. They get a low return. Especially a company of this size, I would think it takes four weeks to analyse the papers. You'd think so. You'd think so. It would take a long period of time and then to decide how many people are going to get fired. In Australia, we have what's called the Fair Entitlement Guarantee. Fair Entitlement Guarantee is a government guarantee where the government steps in and pays a certain amount of the unpaid wages and the entitlements of the employees of a company that goes into liquidation. So Virgin, when it goes into liquidation, which is a guarantee, the government, so the Commonwealth, is going to be footing the bill for a lot of the employee obligations. So uh, when the administrators were appointed, there was the 500 million bucks in the bank. They've spent a bit of that, from what I understand. And um, it's going to be a question of how much the government pays towards those $500 million worth of employment debts. And then there'll be, if there's redundancies, there'll be high costs in that. I don't know, but you would think that there would be at least hundreds of millions of dollars of government monies that are paid. So in terms of the economic loss, you've got the employees being paid by the taxpayer. You've got the creditors, I think it's $6 billion being unpaid. You've got banks with their uh, facilities unpaid, administrators' fees, uh, and then a very low um, price that's going to be paid for the incoming buy. I don't have the details yet. I've got to wait for the creditors' report to come out this week. But from what I've read online, it's something like um, a recapitalization of about a billion dollars. So that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to write a check for a billion dollars. It's um, a recapitalization. Okay, so the US and now also the UK have this data in possession model. And it basically means that the creditors have a much longer time, usually around six months, 180 days, yes. to try to turn the company around or decide what to do with it. Yes. Whereas in Australia at the moment, five we, have, six weeks. we have five to six weeks. There is a process where the administrator can get an extension, but it's a, it's a high-pressure scenario. So when Virgin went into administration, there was the um, estimate of about $500 billion worth of unpaid employee debt. So the administrator it has that in the back of their mind and they're thinking we, we want to get the fire sale over the line so that the employees can be paid out so that we don't spend too much money on the process. But it can be clearly character, characterized as a fire sale process and it's got to be at the lowest valuation point. So the middle of the pandemic, we don't know how long it's going to last for. The reality is with Virgin, it, all of its physical assets are hocked. There's no, there's nothing other Least. than the intangible. Well, look, the banks would have our securities over all their planes. receivables. They've leased all the planes. They rent all their facilities. There's no physical assets to sell. So what the administrators are conveying is really just the goodwill, really just the intangibles. Yes, and the and the rights, for example, you know, the rights at the airport to to land certain number yes. of planes per day, yeah. etc. Yeah, exactly right. Which are all intangibles. You're right. Yes. So this is. This is the um, uncomfortable scenario that we've got. So the ANSET administration is an administration where there, you can just see the parallels with Virgin. And the key parallel with ANSET and Virgin is that both of them are predominantly foreign-owned. So the government didn't want to step in and write a check. ANSET was owned by the New Zealand, New Zealand government? And it was owned by Air New Zealand, which was owned by the Air New Zealand government. So, yes, it was indirect. Yes, and um, Virgin is 90%, I think, owned overseas. Yeah, it's got something Singapore. like a 30% ownership by Emirates or 20%, and then a Chinese airline has 20%. So, it is, when you add it, add it all together, it's 
90% foreign owned. So the government didn't want to step in and write, write a check. It was happy to see, it would prefer to see it go down rather than pay money that would go, go to those invest, investors. Complex economics, complex economics. But most of the businesses that are going to be getting wound up or going into administration will be small to medium-sized enterprises, which are 97% of the companies out there. So that's the predominant work that I do and most other lawyers. And uh, small to medium enterprises have a, have a much tougher time because it's harder to get finance. It's harder to restructure. They don't have the quality of the professional advisors. So Virgin has an investment bank. It has top-tier lawyers, it has top-tier accountants, it has consultants, it has a whole group that are working together to work out a plan. Whereas if you're a small to medium-sized enterprise, you're a trucking company, a builder, if you um, are in some professional area like an engineer, you're not going to have that expertise behind you. You probably have one advisor. You might have your accountant, you might have a lawyer. So that's why it's so much harder to craft a plan because you just don't have the uh, the engine room there. So I was saying that the, the two options in terms of insolvency reform are either the government approach or the debtor in possession approach. That's really the two different approaches. What we've got now is a privately appointed insolvency practitioner regime. So what that means is the insolvency professions, there's about 460 registered insolvency practitioners in Australia. They get appointed as either the liquidator if the company's going to get wound up and shut down, or the administrator if it's a formal administration process, or the receiver if a bank is going to come in and appoint them. So they have the monopoly of those appointments in Australia. And when they get appointed, their obligation is to the creditors. So they've got a legal obligation to investigate the affairs of the company and to act for the creditors. So that's their job. So whereas say in America with the Chapter 11 process, it's lawyers that file an application in court and uh, it's the court that conducts the process, whereas the administrator in Australia does. So the idea was when it was created was that it would be more efficient because you wouldn't have, have to go to court and there could be a vote. It could be done within six weeks and everyone would be in a better position. What it's resulted in is more of a Darwinian type scenario where You've got a um, professional accounting firm in the city that gets appointed and the process is basically crammed together and concluded within a very short period of time with the, all of the players involved, all of the advisors involved, knowing that the chance of a restructure is pretty well zero. And so the company goes into liquidation. There's also a trend in Australia of fraud. So in a lot of these small to medium-sized enterprise insolvencies, there's been something untoward going on. There's been assets being moved or there's what's called Phoenix activity or there's the destruction of the books and records or something to cover a trail so that the insolvency practitioner comes in and um, has a hard time. And look, they've, they've got a very difficult job. They've got an extremely hard job to do. When they get appointed, they're personally committed. So their own assets are on the line and they can't get out of it. Well, they can, but... If it's a court-based appointment, they need to apply to court. And if it's an administration whilst they're appointed, they are personally responsible for whatever goes wrong. So quite a serious job. Okay, so the debt hibernation strategy that Australia has is a temporary strategy. And what you can see with state governments, uh, federal governments is 
I think there's been a hesitation about when it's going to end. There's a hesitation about how long it's going to last for because they're watching the statistics every day. They're watching the, the COVID-19 infection rates. They're watching the JobKeeper numbers. They're watching the unemployment rate. So I think it's going to end the 24th of September. I could be wrong. I don't have any inside inf- information about that other than just reading what's going on. The big problem small and medium-sized enterprises are going to have is that the insolvency laws are great at putting a business to the sword. Administration, low chance of a restructure. It goes into liquidation. Liquidation, the business goes into liquidation. There's an investigation into the affairs of the company. There's clawback claims. It's very unforgiving, okay? It's not a forgiving regime at all. And the main criticism is that the restructuring of the business and turnaround of the business or trying to identify what's viable is not a priority. So that could be one area of reform. And as I said, in the UK, there's been very significant reforms. So the one reform in the UK that's really interesting is that the administrator in Australia, say you walk down the street and you appoint an administrator, they step into the shoes of the directors, they take over the show, which in my opinion doesn't work because they're sitting in an office building in the city. So how the hell can they run a building company? How can they run a transport company? How can they run the sorts of businesses that are going broke? They're not there. They're not on the ground. And they've got no financial incentive to do anything. They're paid hourly. A capitalist model doesn't work on an hourly rate. It'll, it'll fail. It's like a so- Soviet type of an ideology. Okay, so what they did in the UK was they changed the administrator from being a controller to being a monitor which is a sensible reform. So if the directors in the UK appoint an administrator going forward, the administrator won't take their jobs and won't kick them out the door. What the administrator will do is monitor, watch the financials, counsel them, and the uh, power that the monitor has is that if the directors go off course, if they don't follow a sensible approach and they don't do the right thing, the administrator can pull the cord and can put the company into liquidation which I think is a good approach. In Australia, the economic theory behind um, administration, the application of it is crazy. Do you think we should follow the uh, UK approach? Yes. At some stage, you said that the UK model used to be modeled on our system. Are you sure about that? Because I always assumed that we would model what the UK is doing. Was the UK insolvency model actually based on our system? Yeah, it was. So there was a um, a report, a key um, insolvency reform court uh, report called the Harmer Report in 1988. And the Harmer Report was the first insolvency reform report that recommended voluntary administration as a process. And I think the process before it was called official management or something like that, but it was too harsh. It didn't work. And so what they wanted to do was replace it with a, a streamlined process that did involve court appointment, that involved a creditor vote and could get done fast and could result in a, um, a restructure quickly and efficiently. And that an independent accountant who's ethical and has um, passed stringent, Selection stringent review process can, can get appointed to basically steer the ship. And that came in in Australia in 1993. I don't know the year it came in in the UK, but it was definitely based on the harm report, definitely based on what they recommended. But there was a report called the Cork Report in the UK in 1983, which may have foreshadowed parts of it. But I think, I think that we won the race. And I think that the system was based on our experience and what was in the harm report rather than the Cork Report. 
That's interesting. I think that's the first time ever that the UK would follow something that Australia does and not the other way around. Maybe, but it was something that hasn't changed in Australia. So that that law reform that came in in 1993 hasn't changed much. Yes. So it's exactly the same. But so now the UK has changed and is going down the direction of the US yes. to a data and possession model. So there is a chance that our elders will now review our system as well and consider a data and possession model. Look, if there's ever a chance that there's going to be insolvency reform, it's going to be today. There is this economic situation, which is a dire situation that we haven't faced since the Depression. There's never been a confluence of factors like we've got today that would give us a reason to seriously look at the way we deal with insolvent companies. So I would say that if it's ever going to happen, it's going to happen today. I don't think we should just wholesale adopt the American approach. I don't think it would work here. For a start, they have bankruptcy courts. We've got none. So therefore, you can't just suddenly create an entire legal regime if you don't have a single bankruptcy judge. And the UK system? Would the UK system no, fit into Australia? They've still got the administrator as a as a monitor, whereas in America, it's just a court-based application and the director stays in control. The, uh, the management stay in control, so there is no insolvency practitioner appointed. It's only if it gets wound up and there's a trustee appointed down the track. But the restructure process in Australia is... 100% focused on the administrator taking control, which I think is the, it's not a legal issue because I can see how the administration could work in terms of a legal process. This is a practical economic entrepreneurial issue that it has serious shortfalls with. There's no chance we'll, we will wholesale adopt what the Americans have, but we could go a step towards what they have with the, the UK reform. There is no bill that's before the Commonwealth about this. There's no discussion papers. There's there's nothing that indicates that it's going to happen just yet. How long did it take the UK to get this reform through? Well, they had a bill that was sitting, that was prepared before COVID-19. I see. So they were so, really looking at this reform before COVID-19. They are ahead of us. So, for example, one thing they've done in the UK is they've gotten rid of our receivership. So in Australia, I guess you would have seen this with Dick Smith. Okay, Dick Smith went into receivership and then he went into administration at the same time. In the UK, they've stopped that. So I think it's a bit ridiculous that you can have two firms of insolvency practitioners basically over the same com company trying to get different things out of it. It makes it hard to sell. It makes it hard to administer. It's hard to communicate with people that are owed money. But that's what we've got in Australia. In the UK, that's gone. So we haven't even gone down that, that path which is uh, something that I think after the Banking Royal Commission, that may be something good to look at. But um, that's another reform idea that we, we could seriously consider that would make our system more efficient. It would make our system more transparent and it would probably result in a better return to the creditors. Welcome back. After the interview, I asked Ben Sewell two more questions about prepack and phoenixing, which I wanted to share with you. You mentioned a word that's it's called prepack. What is a prepack? Well, this is the difficulty in my area of law that if you, so for example, if you're a business where all the assets are leased or hocked and the only value is intangibles, then the temptation is just to open up a new company and start the next day under a new corporate ending. So a prepack is, is where you get a lawyer, an accountant, or an insolvency practitioner to look at what you've got and work out whether you can 
transfer assets before an administration or after an, um, an admin or before a liquidation or after one. So a prepack is a concept. It's basically a concept that if it's legal and if there's no clawback actions by a liquidator afterwards, what can you do to take the viable parts of a business out of it and start again the next day with a new entity? Now, there's no easy answer to what is legal, what isn't legal. It's it's a it's about the circumstances of the the company. But I'll give you an example of what's changed over the course of my career. So, when I first became an insolvency lawyer, a typical administration appointment or a receivership was over a factory somewhere. So the administrator would turn up, sack all the employees collect all the receivables, sell the unfinished product, sell the finished product, sell the machinery, just go through a process of, of selling everything out. Today, that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because there's no factories anymore. These are service-based enterprises. Everything's hocked. The receivables have been put under security. Everything is leased. What is there? If the liquidator comes in, there is no return. There is a donut. So what? So there is an opportunity for the directors to have a look at what they're doing and think about, okay, well, what if we do start up the next day? What if we do think about taking the viable parts of the enterprise? Is that illegal? And that's not an easy question to answer. And there's the anti-fenixing laws, which need to be considered, and there's also the economic realities of uh, the situation. But that has what is, that's specifically what's changed over the last uh, 20 years. Okay, so prepack is basically just packing up everything that you can that you want or can take with you and then moving it to another entity whether that is legal or illegal will then depend on a range of laws depends on a lot of laws yes and then you say that the safe harbor restructure is is often window dressing for smes okay so in 2017 there was and i talked to you about this two years ago there is a um safe harbor from insolvent trading which is for directors law, for directors which became law at the end of 2017. Now, there's a review process for its effectiveness, which was due last year, but it hasn't been done yet. So I don't have any reports to, to tell you about, but there's been a very low uptake. It's designed for large corporates. So it's designed for large corporates that have the accounting um, backbone and the legal backbone. And um, it's to give the directors of large corporates comfort that they don't need to appoint an administrator. It's very difficult in a small to medium-sized enterprise space because invariably there's problems with tax returns being lodged and employees being paid. So they're the two hurdles. So if you're a small to medium-sized enterprise, you've got to basically pay all of your employees completely up to date and you need to follow your tax returns within time or you can't take advantage of it. But it's a, um, a process whereby... If a plan is put in place or if a, um, a plan is considered, that the directors can continue to trade whilst insolvent while they're working it out. And the criteria is that whatever the plan is or whatever the direction they go in is that it is better than a liquidation scenario. Now, that's not hard because a liquidation basically, as I said, results in nothing. 97, 98% of the time results in no return. So it's very easy to better that, but it doesn't solve the problem. And the problem is... If the company is completely unable to pay its debts, then it should probably go into liquidation before it makes things worse. On the other hand, how do the directors identify the viable part of the business and deal with it or try and save it? And that's the challenge.
And if the business doesn't have its financials completely up to date and doesn't have a model regarding its margin or its profitability or its pricing strategy or something, then no one is going to be able to come in and figure out what the hell's going on. It'll just look like a mess. So who's stepping into the gap in Australia? Phoenix operators. Okay, there's this... For the last 20 years in Australia, ever since I've been a lawyer, I've been continuously reading about Phoenix activity in Australia. This is the the schemes that are undertaken, not only to afford the tax office, but also creditors. And there's no coherent approach to how this is resolved. My personal opinion is the only way to resolve it is to encourage other players, so the directors and their advisors, to be strategic, to give them an economic incentive, to give them a carrot. I think at the end of the day, the stick approach doesn't work. And what it does is it pushes insolvent companies away from their lawyers and their accountants into the hands of uh, the Phoenix operators who engage in criminality. That's because they don't care. If they get sued by liquidator, they don't own their own house. Mm. They could just go, go overseas. There's no effective process in Australia for incentivizing businesses to go to legitimate advisors. And you, as an insolvency lawyer, you don't have any direct contact with Phoenix operators because, of course, if the client goes to a Phoenix operator, of course, they don't go to an insolvency lawyer, correct? So the, the two basically never meet. For sure I meet them, for sure. Okay. It's, it's actually the reason why I'm going out and the reason why I've been talking about Phoenix op- activity for the last 10 years is because a lot of the work that I get is after the Phoenix operator has gouged involved, the company, has gouged the company, has caused the problem, and the directors have been sued anyway, and the directors are in a big hole. So that's when I've been coming in. So yes, I've been exposed to them a lot. I've I've acted for them, uh, defending them as well. But afterwards. But afterwards, yes. Welcome back. Next Monday. We will go back to regular episodes again. It will be episode 247 and Jeff Steen of Brown Wright Steen Lawyers will talk about holding versus bucket company. When you structure for business or wealth, should you have a bucket company on the side or should you insert a holding company between the trading company and the trust? That is the question Jeff Steen will discuss with you next week. Thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.